So this morning, we take a passage that is very tender, and we find in it a thorn. And that's a difficult thing to do. As I said, we're turning a corner last week, and we're going from his public, Jesus' public ministry into his uh, semi-public ministry, his, his private ministry, if you will, among his disciples, and that's going to carry us through John into the narrative of his death. So John gives us props, well, certainly the most extensive information about what is going on on this evening, that Christ Jesus uh, had a lot to share with his disciples. Uh, we saw last week that in the midst of this, um, while they were disputing who would be greatest in the kingdom, Jesus Christ chose to become the servant of all of them that he took the most humiliating role uh, available to them in their culture and to communicate to them the necessity of him serving them that their sins might be forgiven. That without that work of God, there is no fellowship with God. And so we come to the concept of forgiveness, come to the concept of service, and in the midst of this, we didn't emphasize it last week, but it is certainly spoken of, and we want to talk a lot more about it this week. And that is, this is the expression of God's love for us. John brings that out pretty strongly in verse 1 of chapter 13, and when he wants us to know that Jesus Christ loved his own who were in the world. He loves them, and that's a driving theme of John. We understand that, that Jesus Christ loves us. That's the Father loves us, sent his Son. The Son loves us, and that's why he is participating in this. And this is really the beginning of a trilogy of qualities of God that he desires to share with us and have us participate in and enjoy with him and, and serve him with. And this is the first, and that is love. And so John wants to insert this information that Jesus Christ loved his own and he was going to love them, continue loving them to the end. John inserts this at a very important place. Um, he doesn't say this later on. He's not going to put this at the end of the chapter, although he's going to repeat something very similar to this. He wants to bring this out right at the very beginning. Um, it's going to be wrapped up again um, at, later on in the discussion. Um, and of course we had the foot washing activity to draw attention to the idea that true love is sacrificial. It is serving love. And selfish love is never sacrificial. It's always about me, 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 me. True love is I'm going to pour out my life for others and not for myself. And that's going to be very critical to our study today. And so we come to this, but we want to see the contrasting point. The contrasting point to normal self-love that all of us have too much of um, is Christ's sacrificial love. John brings this out. This is the word agape, um, which we understand. This is not phileo um, uh, love. This is not brotherly love that he's talking about. He's talking about this sacrificial commitment of one to another. And so this um, is something he says he's going to love them to the end. And this is an enduring, steadfast love of God. And that is critically important to our study today that we understand that we're talking about something that is not fickle like human love that is unreliable many times. Well, 
and it's evident. When we look around our society and we see broken relationships everywhere, I thought you loved him. I thought you loved her. Well, why are you now hating on each other? Why are you separated from each other? How, how did love turn to hate? How did, how did you go from seeing everything in this person to seeing nothing in, in this person? How does this happen? And so our concept of love is not a faithfulness. Our society has driven love as a temporal thing that vacillates. It just goes up and down and over and back, and, and that's love in our mind. And many of the people you're encountering, and perhaps in your, your life and in, in your family's life, that's what love is. It's just, well, I fell out of love. I fell in love. Like it was a happy accident. I hate to tell you this, agape love is never, ever an accident. It is never driven by attraction. It is never uh, composed of mutual personalities. Uh, it is driven by something much deeper than that. And so because it is driven by something more substantial, it endures. And the Greeks understood this kind of love that was dependable, always counted on. And this is what John wants to communicate to us, that the love of God knows no end. It doesn't increase and decrease. It doesn't, it doesn't shift here and there. That it is enduring and steadfast. And with this understanding now, we begin to, and we don't, because it would take me two sermons just to, clear the mud out of what our society has done to, to the concept of love in your thinking. And in my thinking, frankly. I've done a lot of work for the last three weeks just trying to clear that from your brain. That somehow this is, no. It's not based upon what we can do for each other. It's not based upon an attraction. It's not based upon any of those things. It is a life commitment. And so, um, not only that I would die for you, that sometimes is an easier task. But I will live every day, every hour for you is perhaps the more difficult test of love. Not just for weeks, not just for a year or two, but for decades and a lifespan. And when we say to this one at the altar, um, I do... <laughs> I do what? Well, we have this whole list of things, I promise, to do this, 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 this. Well, we wouldn't really need those lists of promises to hold and to keep, to try, all those things. We wouldn't need those lists of promises if we really understood love. All I have to do is say, I will love you the rest of my life, or your life, whichever one is shorter. And that would be enough if we had a correct concept of what love is. I am making a contractual agreement with you that my life is at your disposal. And that's what John means when he says, Jesus loved his own. And those that are in the world, and he's going to talk about his own disciples. When we get to his prayer in chapter 17, he's going to pray for his disciples, the immediate ones around him, and then he's going to pray for all the rest of the people who will, obey, will, will believe in him. That's you and me. So Jesus was praying for you back then in the garden. And so he, we're in that. And so Jesus loved his own who were in the world, um, and he loved them to the end. And we can use this tense because the constancy of 
God's love is, is affirmed over and over again in Scripture. Um, we're gonna, we can see it in God's relationship with Israel, God's relationship with the prophets, God's relationship with the patriarchs before Israel. God was faithful. We are unfaithful, but God was faithful. And, and no picture probably is stronger in our understanding of that was when he makes Hosea go out and marry a prostitute. And knowing that she's going to be unfaithful, but yet you're going to be faithful to her, even though she's going to definitely be unfaithful to you. This is the kind of love God has for us. That he shows towards us an enduring, steadfast love that the world has no concept of, frankly. They just don't. And it's evident when you see the wreckage of relationships in their past. It tells you they don't grasp what this means. Because we are inundated with love yourself, love yourself, love yourself, not only from the media, not only from our society, not only from our educational system, but from too many of our pulpits. Love yourself, love yourself, love yourself from a psychological community, from the medical community. You got to love, you know, you got to go to every community and it's all about you. And love says it's not about me at all. And so it's foreign to us. This is a foreign language we're talking that Jesus is talking in in these chapters. These principles are fundamentally foreign to us. So we come to this declaration and we think, okay, you know, this is going to be about love and so it's going to be, you know, a Hallmark chapter. Right? It's going to be like a Hallmark movie. Has to be. You know, it, it's going to be, um, what's that other lady and all those things? All, what is, what's that lady's name? My girls all want to watch those movies all the time. Jane Austen. It's not a Jane Austen chapter. It's not a Hallmark chapter. It starts out all about love, yes. Um, but the next verse, you're immediately going, oh, man, why? In the chapters filled about talking about Jesus loving us to the end, the very next verse, we are confronted with Satan and Judas. And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus Christ loved them both. And that's the measure of agape love. It's not do you love the people you like. Do you love the people you get along with? Do you love the people that are, that are helping you out? Um, the world loves those people. That's easy. If you want to be radical in love, you're going to love your enemies. And so when John gets done talking about Jesus Christ loved his own well, who are his own? Well, he is the king of king and lord of lords. He's the creator of all that exists. It's all his own. One day they will all bow down to him. You might be a little disturbed when I say Jesus loved Satan, but he did. He created his created being of, of God and was in an exalted position, and it was a devastating thing for him to lift up his head against God and go down there in his own creation and meddle in it and destroy it. Seek to destroy it. So we come into the contrast to godly love, steadfast, enduring, um, sacrificial love, 
And that contrast is epitomized by two names that send shivers up your back, or at least they should. So let's go to verse 2. We pretty much skipped it last week because I knew this was coming. It says, Supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, um, and Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God. We're going to stop right there um, because we're going to jump forward. Let's jump way ahead. And um, verse 27, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how I want to do this. Um, verse 27 says, Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. And you might say, Well, when did this happen? Before the foot washing and the, and the sharing of the communion table? Or is, was it afterwards? And the, and the word order of verse 2 is the issue. Um, because it, it, it's a little cumbersome and it can mean a couple of different things. And so we're going to get into verse 2 and talk about the potential that there was conceptually already a plan in place. Um, and the likelihood is, is that while Judah was inter, or Judas was entertaining the idea, it hadn't laid hold of him yet. That is, he had been confronted with a temptation at some juncture, that perhaps through this avenue of turning over Jesus to his authorities, that maybe that was a way to precipitate the overthrow of the government. Very possible motivation. Whatever it was, the, the ideation, the, 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 the principle behind it all, um, was the concept, was really Satan's. And the and so some have translated this, that uh, the devil having already decided to work on the heart of Judas Iscariot. That is that he already knows which agent among them. And this is interesting, that God, Jesus, Satan already has a, a conceptual plan. He is looking for an agent to affect that plan, is essentially what John is saying here. Satan had already put together his plan. And pretty much all of the pieces were in place. You have the Pharisees and Sadducees who are already ready to sacrifice one for the benefit of everyone because their high priest said so. You already have the conflict that has arisen. You have these agents in place. You have Herod. You have Pilate. All these things are in place. Only one element is left, and that is we need a betrayer. So conceptually, Satan has already identified which of the 12 he is going to go and entice. And so, that, so the evidence is, is that um, Judas has already been confronted with the possibility of doing this and was really studying on it. And Satan knows it. Satan knows that he has been confronted with it. Um, what does Satan know about Judas? What can he know? Does Satan know the thoughts of a man? No, Satan is not God. But what can Satan? Satan is a great observer. And many people that are in these uh, fortune-telling businesses and stuff, they are terrific observers and they're terrific guessers. Well, Satan just outdoes them all. Um, what, is, what can he observe? Well, we can observe, if you knew what was going on in, 
that the, everyone else didn't see, what did he know Judas was doing? He was taken from the money pot for himself. Well, that exposes something, doesn't it? You don't have to be a mind reader. If you know that the guy is embezzling, you know you've got your target. Because if he can embezzle, he can betray. And so Satan had already identified Judas Iscariot as the agent by which he will deliver Jesus into the hands of his enemies. So John, in a very abrupt manner, lays this out, and it's kind of like a, you know, now you have a tension in this chapter, like any good storyteller would, would produce. And he says, we have Satan has already identified Judas Iscariot. And by the way, John has already identified Judas Iscariot as the one who would betray us. So we've known early on the book, and we also know early on that he was, he was, you know, taking money. He was embezzling from the accounts. So um, that was, uh, we've known it. Satan knows it. And so who is Satan going to select? You might say, well, Peter's always getting himself into trouble. And, and, you know, Jesus himself says, get behind me, Satan. You know, and so um, was Satan in him? No, Satan wasn't in him. That was not Jesus saying Peter was satanically uh, filled. Um, but rather that you are speaking as if you're Satan. You're using his words to turn me from my mission. But here we find this individual could be readily identified. So Satan has already in, identified who the agent's going to be. He knows. He knows the weak link of the 12. He knows which one. Having said that now, we jump ahead. To verse 18, it says, I do not speak concerning all of you. What did he just share? He says that you need to um, serve one another. You need to be forgiving one another. Uh, but I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it comes to pass, does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. The other Gospels tells us that they even went around and asked the question, Is it I? Lord, is it me? Am I the one? Because they looked around the table and they looked at the other men and, and they were spotless. They were blameless. And so each one of them looked in himself and says, well, maybe it's me. Very powerful question I want to get back to here in a little bit. But I want you to set a, a theological point first. While Satan had, had put everything in place and had identified the agent within the inner sanctum of Jesus' 12, which agent he would use, um, and while it seems that, that everything is being put uh, together by, by the evil one, Jesus Christ declares something quite different about the exact same event. And we have this strong contrast between verse 2 and Jesus' statement that said, this is all a fulfillment of prophecy. 
So who's in charge here? Well, God has communicated this is how it's going to go down. I just want to share with you that while Satan has identified his agent, God has already identified his agent. That was his agent was going to be Satan, and that was going to be his agent was Judas. And so we have a fulfillment of prophecy. And you might say, well, why the prophetic fulfillment? Well, verse 19 tells us. Verse 19, Jesus says, Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am the one. I am the Messiah. I am the one the scriptures have foretold of, and one of the prophetic declarations of, of the Messiah to come was that he would be betrayed by one who shared bread with him. One of his innermost, uh, tightest counsels, um, and we're going to look at a couple of those passages here in a minute. But that prophetic utterance does not make God causing this, but rather God communicating that Satan will be the one that will be the agent, and among Jesus' inner group, there will be one susceptible to Satan's work. There was going to be one. And the statement was, woe to that one, whoever he is. Well, what makes you susceptible to being targeted by Satan? This is a, Satan didn't just randomly pick one of the twelve, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, Pick a disciple by his toe. If they, no. What makes you targeted by Satan to be an agent of his in his work to oppose God is sin. Judas was, a, was committing ongoing sin even while he was walking around in the temple while he was participating in, in distributing food that was miraculously being created by the Savior, he was one of the twelve that was handing out food to the five thousand. He has seen blind men see, seen lame men walk, he has seen the dead come out of a grave, he has heard all the teachings of Jesus, he has, he has witnessed all of these things, he's seen people testify, Hosanna, <laughs> bless these who comes in the name of the Lord, all of these things. He was there, he had an impeccable character, a reputation that, that, that he was one of the best. I mean, they trusted him with the money box and bag. And, and so we find him uh, there, and you might say, well, in all that mist, he was persistently sinning. What is it that makes you a target? For Satan to say, I can use you, it is persistent sin, even while participating in all the wonders of the kingdom of God. I can use you because you have persistent sin in your life. Do you think that's important to John? If, if you haven't read a lot of John, uh, I encourage you to read 1 John and see how far you get before you, you say, sin is the problem. That sin cannot be persistent in our life because it makes us of the ilk of Judas Iscariot. He had participated in all these wonders. But all along the way, he was embezzling. Nobody knew it. He'd never been caught. Do you think Jesus didn't know what was going on? Do you think Satan didn't know what was going on? They both knew. 
Why didn't Jesus stop him? Well, why doesn't Jesus stop your sin? The same reason he doesn't force anyone to get saved, because you have authority over yourself. You choose whom you'll serve this day. You choose. You choose who will be the master of your life. You choose whether you will love God with agape kind of love or whether you will love yourself to the point that you will love your sin more than your Savior. And fundamentally, that was the case with Judas Iscariot. He loved his sin more than his Savior. And that made him a rich target for Satan. So what would the prophecy say? Jesus says, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. I'm telling you ahead of time that one of you sitting at this table is the fulfillment of prophetic utterances. I'm telling you this. Why? So that you will believe. Believe what? Not that God is sovereignly controlling every little minutia in the world, but that you may believe that I am the Christ. Do not be shocked when I'm betrayed. Do not be shocked when I'm arrested, when I'm tried, when I'm hanging on a cross. These are all things that are predicted. And as they occur, you should be saying, this is the Christ. You should have been saying it all along because what also was predicted was his birth, all that narrative. Uh, we have John the Baptist's statement, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. You have a direct prophetic point. That's the guy. You listened to that. You saw the signs. You heard the teachings. You've seen the wonders. All of those were predictive, but the Bible also predicts this part. I'm showing you all of this so that you might believe there should not be a faltering of faith just because there's a betrayer among you. There should not be a faltering of faith just because the kingdom isn't coming the way you expect it to come. There should not be a faltering of your faith when you see me die on a cross. Because the prophecies have all said this. There should not be a faltering of faith among those who know what the Bible teaches. And we live in a day when faith falters constantly among God's people. Why? Because they don't know his word. And because they have persistent sin in their life that they're more attached to than their Savior. Making them prime targets for Satan. To do his work within the confines of churches and small and, and homes. And so what is the prophecy there that I might believe? So as these things come to true, and by the way, we have them for ourselves too. The Bible says, here's what the end times will be. And right on the top of the list, if you know the list, do you know the list in Timothy? Men will be lovers of themselves, boastful, proud, top three, bam, bam, bam. And right up there is disobedient to parents too. That is, that is all we cherish in this world today. Love yourself, boast, and be proud. Doesn't matter what sin you're engaged in, that's why it's gay pride. We have to have pride in our sin. Things that are shameful, we're proud of. And people who are walking in the light as he is in the light are supposed to be ashamed of themselves. I'm not ashamed of that because I won't be ashamed of my Savior. So we have this strong contrast and, and Satan's targeted person is the one prophecy has declared, woe to him, whoever it is. Well, who it is wasn't random. It was determined based upon the condition of their lives, that while they witnessed all this stuff, it didn't belong to them because 
they never gave their life to God. Oh, they wanted something from God. There's no doubt Judas wanted a lot from Jesus. What is also certain is Judas gave nothing to Jesus, which describes most Christians today that I've encountered. Why did you get saved? I wanted to be forgiven. I wanted to get out of hell, free card, and I want to go to heaven. Everyone else sends start. I want, I want, I want, for me, me, me. How are you any different than anyone else? Every two-year-old says, if I say, do you want candy? Yes. Do you want this? Yes, yes. Do you want this toy? Yes. Do you want this? Yeah, we're all about taking the freebies, right? We'll line up and fight for the freebies. Sacrifice? You mean I, this is going to cost me? Uh, I don't think I signed up for that. And you're right, you didn't, because you didn't hear that part. It's not part of many of our evangelistic messages, is costliness of discipleship. And so we come to this, and we find Judas is the one. While God has prophesied it, we know that it was determined not by the ordained will of God, who it would be. It was decided by, first of all, Satan's had a concept and Judas became the, the agent because of his persistent sin. And those were those two individuals' choices. And so we find that God prefaces this by saying, listen, I'm going to tell you this ahead of time. It's going to happen. And that's the main thrust of prophecy is to, that we might believe. So as you see things happening, you say, this is just what God said would happen, and so now I don't have a faltering faith, I have a fortified faith. Every time you see prophecy come true, your faith should get stronger, should be planted sure. This is just like what God said. And that's why I love studying prophecy, because as you see it come happening around you, I go, boom, oh, well, <laughs> I'm fortified. In my faith, I'm strengthened, I'm sure, I'm stronger. Um, I, I won't back down. There are certain topics now you can't make me back down off of. I'm not going to wishy-washy, and, and I love this, I don't love, I hate this answer, you know, well, we'll all figure it out when we get to heaven. What a bunch of, <laughs> that's what I think of that statement. God gave us his word for our life here. Not to just be, well, we'll all get along. We'll figure out who's right in heaven. Let me tell you something where you're going to figure out who's right. And that is at the great white throne. And then it's too late. So if I seem a little rigid, it's because my faith has been strengthened because of my study of prophecy. And so Jesus Christ says, I'm, I'm telling you this ahead of time so that when it happens, and by the way, we're about an hour and a half away from it happening. <laughs> We're not talking about weeks. We're not talking about days. We're talking about minutes. We are minutes away from this happening. He says, I'm telling you this ahead of time so that when it happens, you will believe in me, that I am the Messiah. Well, what's the prophecy he's talking about? Well, this is out of Psalms, and we're going to go to a couple of Psalms. Um, probably in your margins here, you have a Psalm identified. Let me see if I can... Uh, quickly find it here. 
it's in italics and everything for me. Um, oh, no wonder I'm in the wrong chapter. That would help. Um, they're going to have Psalm 41. So let's go to Psalm 41. It's not the psalm I want to focus in on, but we're going to include it because it's in your cross-reference and it is the direct quote, but there's other indications of it as well. Let's go to Psalm 41. Let's pick up in verse 7. We're going to read more than just one verse. Uh, let's pick it up here. It says, All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him, and now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. That's the... Uh, Denying the resurrection. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up. That's a resurrection. That I may repay them. By this I know that you are well pleased with me because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set before me your face forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. The enduring love of God goes to the end. Everlasting to everlasting is his love for us. And so he comes to the God, his Father, and this is what Gethsemane is really all about, and pours this all out of him. And in fact, the, John says he was troubled in his spirit. And we've already seen him troubled in his spirit in this book, and now he's troubled in his spirit. He's told them, but they haven't got it, and so he wants to be very specific. It troubles him just to think about it. We're going to reference that here in a little bit. But we find here the psalmist pouring it out. I have my enemies. Okay, that, I understand the enemies. Verse 7, they, 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 they're against me. There is a confederacy against me of my enemies. And that's true for Jesus as it was for David during the time of Absalom's rebellion. And that's really what this psalm was written about, was when David's own son uh, raised up a kingdom against him, and he was watching some of his people turning from him being king to Absalom being king, and particularly a couple of very close ones, and one of them was Ahithophel. And Ahithophel becomes a precursor to Judas. And if you don't know what's behind this chapter and the story of Absalom's uh, rebellion against his father and uh, sleeping with some of the concubines in public and all of that, uh, one of the things was Ahithophel was, one of the, was considered the wisest advisor in David's kingdom. And he went with Absalom. And so no one in the kingdom knew David and how he thought and functioned than Ahithophel. No one. He was the wisest man, and he betrays David and goes over to Absalom. And he has an opportunity to fill Absalom's ear with wise advice because he knows his father. And so as David is leaving the city, the second wisest guy <laughs> in his administration comes and says, I'm following after you. He says, no, you need to go back and pretend to be with Absalom because Ahithophel has betrayed me. You need to go and give alternate advice. And maybe we can frustrate the wisdom of Ahithophel. Great story that parallels so wonderfully the, the, the person and nature of the work of Satan with Judas was Ahithophel with Absalom. And so here we come. And so Ahithophel gives us advice. Let's get our army together. Let's chase him down right now. Let's not give David a rest. Don't give him a break. Before he can gather the people together, let's go take him out right now. 
And Absalom's going, that's great advice. Everyone's asking great advice. He says, well, just for, let's just hear what this guy has to say. This guy says, oh, you know your dad. He knows how to hide in the mountains. He can crawl into a rock and you'll never find him. You better just to secure your position here, get everyone gathered around you, and then just nail him with a huge army. And they thought, well, that's pretty good advice too. Let's take a vote. And they went with that advice. And they ignored Ahithophel. And Ahithophel was disgraced by it. He was infuriated by it, but he was also disgraced. He went out and did something. He hung himself. Sound familiar? It's exactly what Judas is going to do. See, I'm convinced that like Ahithophel, Judas thought he could force some things to happen and elevate his place in the kingdom. Remember, the disciples were arguing over who would be greatest. While they were arguing about it, Judas was over there planning it. How could I be the greatest? Well, if I can... He's trying to get it all figured out. He's got his own alternative plan. And then Satan enters him later on in the text here, and now it's going to be an empowered plan. It's a conceptual plan of Satan that Judas is the target agent because he has persistent sin. And then it goes from that condition to suddenly now Satan has filled your heart. How do you go from one to the other? Very simply, you yield. And a Christian in sin, quote-unquote Christian in sin, persistent sin that John says is not a Christian because Christians don't have persistent sin that they refuse to acknowledge and won't confess. Judas had unconfessed sin that he was harboring in his life, refused to acknowledge and wouldn't confess and wouldn't repent of. And so that made him the target. And so he is the fulfillment of this one that has ate my bread and has lifted up his heel against me. Turn now to Psalm 55. Another great psalm. I want you to know that the betrayer wasn't recognizable because nobody knew he was sinning. His persistent sin was very successfully accomplished so that he never got caught. In Psalm 55, I want to read a lot of this. I really want to read the whole thing, but time is going to get away from me. Let's jump to verse, uh, the first few verses talk about the condition of the world, that, every, that there's this wickedness and all to escape it. But verse 12, we'll pick up verse 12. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. I want you to know that Judas didn't hate God. He just loved himself more. I'll say that again. Judas didn't hate God. He loved himself more. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. Which just happened a few days earlier. Let death seize them, let them go down alive into hell, for wickedness is their dwellings and among them. As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. He has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle that was against me, for there were many against me. God will hear and afflict them, even he who abides from of old, because they do not change, therefore they do not fear God. 
He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has broken his covenant. He's referring to the betrayer again here. God was at peace with him. He raised up his hand against him, broke the covenant, that agreement, that treaty they had together. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words are softer, were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. This is the description of Judas Iscariot. Nobody, I mean nobody at that table but Jesus and Judas would have identified him as the betrayer. So they all asked the question, is it I? And the question, and that question is so insightful. It tells us so much about the other 11 <laughs> that they recognize their own condition, that they were capable of betraying their Savior. And we need to recognize that every one of us has within us the capacity of betrayal. It's there. And to deny it is foolishness. It is bound up in our heart. But what is it that it is the, the power of the working of God to transform that and to, and to bring us into the truth and into the light, to walk in the light. Why is it so necessary that we walk in the light as he is in the light, that we can have fellowship with him? Because just a couple of steps in the darkness that we don't repent of makes you the prime agent, targeted agent of Satan. To bring in that self-love into your heart that then blossoms up into betrayal of the one that you said you loved. But you loved yourself more. Because you loved that sin or and that and you loved your own interests instead of the interests of others. And so you've broken a relationship. And it is no mistaking that while the psalmist calls upon God to save him, which Jesus Christ is going to do as well, in Gethsemane, call upon his Father, save me from this hour, yet the hour is necessary, so uh, I'll, I'll look for your rise, raising me up in three days, that you're pleased with me. But while that was the condition of the psalmist and of Jesus, the condition for the betrayer is let death seize them, let them go down alive into hell. For wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. So while the prophetic content is there, and it's so that we will believe that Jesus is who he is, because this was, a, uh, the psalmist was prophesying in Psalm 41 here in Psalm 55 and other places. And so we find that while the prophecy came true, um, we recognize that there is a personal responsibility, a weight that is on this one Judas for his unrepentant sin that made him the prime target for Satan's scheme and that when Satan entered his heart, he was ready to go and implement that. And each one of us needs to recognize that the nature of this betrayal is present within mankind, particularly if we allow persistent sin. And that's why John is so concerned about the Christian and their sin. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Get out of that sin. Stop loving yourself. 
Do you love God more than these? That's a question Jesus is going to ask Peter. Do you love me, agape me, more than these others? More than these things? More than the kingdom? More than yourself? More than your family? Put in whatever you want under these. It doesn't matter. Do you agape me more than these? And Peter couldn't answer him. His answer was, I flatter you. I'm, I'm your buddy. I'm your brother. I'm your friend. Jesus says, are you willing to give up your life for me? And everything in it for me? Costly love. Are you ready for that? That's what Jesus is asking. So when these disciples are going around the table saying, is it I, is it I, is it I? It was a genuine reflection upon the nature of their heart. And oh, that we would have that same understanding. Lord, am I a betrayer of you? Do I love myself more than I love you? Am I more interested in my things than your things? Do I love you more than these? Is my love for you greater than my love for? And make the list. Make the list. Write it down. Check them off. Do I love Jesus more than my job? Do I love Jesus more than my wife? Do I love Jesus more than my kids? Do I love Jesus or do I love my car? Tractor. (laughs) House. Check them off. Because I want to tell you something. If the Bible is correct, and I'm pretty sure it is, your faith might cost you all those things before your life is over in this country. It already is costing people those things in most other countries. So when the statement by Joshua say, choose you this day whom you will serve, <laughs> there is no middle ground. You are either a follower of Jesus Christ or in the spirit of Judas. There isn't anywhere else to go if you're here claiming to be a Christian. And so that's why John is going to be so concerned about eradicating sin out of the Christian's life. is because it sets you up to be an agent of Satan. And you don't have to hate God. You don't have to hate Jesus. You can even declare your love for him and participate in worshiping him, but just love yourself more than your love for him. And that's really all it takes to destroy your marriage. You don't have to hate your spouse to destroy your marriage. You just have to love yourself more than your spouse. And you'll destroy your marriage. You can destroy a church and love it at the same time. You just have to love yourself a little bit more than you love your church. And it happens all the time. See, when the Bible says you have to, <laughs> and you're comparing your love for God to your family, the world would say, say you, you, you hate your kids, or you hate your wife, or you hate your mother, or your father. Yeah, in comparison to my love for Jesus, yeah. I'll turn my back on them in a heart breath if I needed to. That's what I say. Lord willing, that's what I'd do. But that is the condition of my love for God. Though it costs me all things, I will keep praising him. And that is the power of Job's testimony. When he lost it all, he could not come to curse God. Couldn't do it. God gives and he takes and blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm, gonna, I'm, still, I'm still a follower of him. No persistent sin in Job's life. So God, Satan couldn't use him. 
Satan couldn't use Job because Job was a perfect man. Said that he had any sin, he, he confessed right away. He offered sacrifices only for his own, but for his children's sin, he, he, he walked in the light. And so he couldn't be used by Satan as an agent to bring God's glory down. I want to challenge you to ask the question, is it I? Not of me, but of God. Uh, to remind yourself that all it takes is some persistent sin in your life and a little bit more love for yourself than God or a little bit more love for someone else than God and they can turn your heart away from God then. And suddenly you're a betrayer. You're in the same category as Judas. But I want to close this out by reminding you enduring love of God was betrayed by Judas, but God's love kept going. I believe the reason Jesus was troubled, verse 21, Jesus, when Jesus had said these things, he already told them the prophecy, he told them why, uh, I want you to believe, I, I'm doing all this so you believe in me, um, most of I say to you, receive me, resend, receives, whoever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, so he'd already communicated them the prophetic information so that they could believe. He gave them all the data they needed to understand what was coming, um, and they still didn't get, get it. So when Jesus says, it says he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most surely I say to you, one of you will betray me. He just had to put it in as plain as he could. So while all the theological points are covered and we understand the purpose of prophecy and we understand the, the necessity of the betrayal, it still on a personal level was hard to endure. To sit there at this very intimate time when he had just washed Judas's feet. One of you will betray me, and it's troubling me. I'm facing the crucifixion, that's troubling, but I'll deal with that in Gethsemane with me and my father, I'll do with the, and I'll take three of you with me to pray with me over there, and you'll fall asleep while that's coming, all right? But um, what's troubling right now is I just washed everybody's feet, and one of you is a betrayer. As necessary as prophecy is to, that it has to come true, it's troubling when it does, because we don't really want it. God's love doesn't really want all these things, but they're necessary. It's necessary. And because of the necessity of Christ's sacrifice, the necessity of the betrayal, all these things for our salvation, Jesus Christ looked beyond them to the joy of all these people getting saved and being drawn out of hell, but he was still sad over the one guy who is the son of perdition who is going to be in hell. Death is going to seize him very quickly. One of his 12 is going to kill himself. One of the 12 are going to be descending into hell. And Jesus will be there shortly thereafter as he descends to take captivity captive. But uh, he'll be on the wrong side of Sheol. I'm sorry, he'll be on the wrong side of, of uh, yeah, I got that. Of he won't be on the paradise side of Hades. So it troubles Jesus. So my 
excited to see prophecy come true when it says that there'll be great falling away, when it says all these things. It doesn't excite me. It fortifies my faith, but it can still trouble my spirit. And the illusion here is very similar to that of Lot, who sat at the gate and was a righteous man. But he sat at that gate and he was troubled in his spirit every day as he saw the sin going on around him. Am I excited about the extent of the societal collapse, moral collapse that's happening around us? No, it's troubling. It's disconcerting. I, I really don't like it. It fortifies my faith because God said it would happen. And I'm like, well, it's, I better brace myself, prepare myself, because what's next is not going to be pretty. We're going to become the enemies of the state. I already am. All it takes is one person to come in here and say, he's got hate speech and I'm gone. Because I preach against homosexuality and I preach against a lot of other things. All it takes is for one person. That's where our society is today. That's where our, where our judicial system is today. That You proclaim the truth of God's word, that's hate speech, and you're done. You're a terrorist, same level. So we come to this understanding there's a personal troubling of the spirit. Even while the prophecy is happening, it's exciting, and we're going to believe, and we have a fortified faith, but we have a troubled spirit. And those things go together. Those things go together. And this is hard. Just like the last time, the hard thing is suffering and the glory of God go together? Yes, they do. They, they're, they're, they're match made for each other. Okay? We've divorced them. God has, has wed them. And that glorifying God and suffering are together. And that's going to come up again later in this chapter that as soon as Judas leaves, the Son of Man is now glorified. I'm troubled, but God's being going to be glorified because this is going to happen, and it's for a greater benefit. That is God's glory. So a lot to ask ourselves here, isn't there? Guard your heart from persistent sin. And that will keep you from being a prime targeted agent for Satan's work. And if you can keep his plan out of your life, you'll be able to keep his power out of your life and let the power of the Holy Spirit work in you richly. Let's pray. Lord God, I do thank you again for your word. And we thank you for your prophetic declarations in your word that we see fulfilled in your coming and your all that transpired there that we see recorded. We thank you for them that we might believe. We recognize the prophetics, the prophecies are still not completed. Your coming to earth has not yet been done. Your millennial kingdom has not come here upon the earth. The new heaven and new earth are not before us. They're not with us now. So we know that there's still more to come. Lord, as we see our world hating us and turning, Lord, help us to see that you are being glorified. That our faith should be not faltering, but fortified. But Lord, we are troubled. We do not want to be 
the Judases of our age. Oh, Lord, convict us of persistent sin. That Satan would have no place for a foothold in this fellowship. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.